Okay, friends, and the story begins. We are continuing part three of the binding of Isaac Akedat Yitzchak. It's on the blue sitter, page 14. So let's recap on what happens here. We're reading about Abraham's dedication. And although it may seem bizarre, um, if it didn't come from God, this would definitely be inexcusable. But he was committed to God. He was committed to God in his willingness to do something totally against his nature. He was committed to God in his enthusiasm to do that which is against his nature, against any human being's nature. And as we left off at the end of last week, what was the whole purpose of this? Abraham accentuated or epitomized love, the love of God. Kindness. Um, chesed. Right? That was the channel he represented. The Talmud even states that when Abraham was born, the trait of kindness, um, I guess we, we use anthropomorphism not only for God, but even for godly traits. And the trait of kindness complained to God and said, what is this? Competition. He's putting me out of business here. Abraham was just too kind. God needed to see that his relationship with, with God and his commitment does not only revolve around love. He doesn't just love Judaism, just love monotheism. It wasn't Judaism back then, but monotheism. But he actually respects it as well. There was a sense of givura. There was the channel of discipline. Because love without discipline is unsustainable. What love without discipline, love without reverence, ahava without yira is self-serving. But when it's balanced with yira, with respect, with that channel of discipline, it's now sustainable. And that's why, if you look on the bottom of um, bottom of 13, four lines from the bottom, and he said, the angel says to Abraham, do not lay your hand upon the lad, nor do anything to him, for now I know that you are God-fearing man. Now I know you revere God. Okay. What was Abraham's reaction to all of this at the end of the day? So take a look, please, on page 14, line number three. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will see. In Hebrew, Hashem Yireh. Why did he call it that? As it is referred to this day on the mount where the Lord shall reveal himself. Abraham essentially said, one day this is going to be the place where God exposes himself. This was almost like a prophecy. Abraham realized this is where the Beit HaMikdash is going to be built. This is where Jews are going to come. This is where the pilgrimage is going to take place. This is going to be the core. This is going to be the center. Not just of Judaism, not just of community, but this is where God is going to manifest himself on earth. This is where heaven and earth are going to kiss. Right at this very spot. And what Abraham realized was that his dedication, his Mesirat Nefesh, his alacrity, his demonstration of reverence, not just love, love was very natural to him, but his demonstration of even reverence against his nature, this is what's going to cause God to expose himself to future generations. Now, 
if we remember, you know, we're not just studying a biblical passage. Otherwise, we wouldn't be studying Siddur, we'd be studying the Chumash. This is in the Siddur for a reason. There's a value here. You know, this is a preliminary prayer. There's a value here that's trying to that, that we're trying to internalize by reciting this in the morning as our pre, uh, preamble to, to prayer. We need to love God. We need to revere God. And we need to dedicate ourselves to that. And when we do, we're going to experience God at the temple. In our own personal temple, which is what prayer is, lighting the fire in our altar and our heart. And ultimately in the global temple as well. Let, let's continue reading. Six lines from the top on page 14. An angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you have done this and not have withheld your son, your only son, I will greatly bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your descendants shall inherit the gates of their enemies. So because you have done all of this, not only is God going to reveal himself, that's the natural result of our sacrifice, us experiencing God, but we're going to have numerous offspring, right? And there's two analogies for numerous, numerous, see that six times fast. There's two analogies for numerous offspring. We're going to be like the stars and we're going to be like the sand, right? The simple way, the simple um, interpretation, there's going to be a lot of us. You can't count the stars. You can't count the sand. There's too many of us, right? A lot of Jews. There's a more homiletic interpretation that the commentaries bring as well. Sometimes we're referred to as stars. Sometimes we're referred to as sand. What's the difference between stars and sand? So when we're doing what we're supposed to as Jews, we're like stars. We're lamplighters. We're illuminating the dark. We're illuminating the night for people. We're bringing clarity to the world. That's what our job is. If not, we're going to be like sand which is a good thing still. Sand gets trampled on, but you can't destroy sand. It doesn't work. <laughs> it just recycles. It goes back into the... You can't get rid of sand. I guess you could turn it into glass. But you, you can't... No matter how much you trample on sand, it won't get destroyed. There's other times throughout the Torah where we're referred to as earth. You know, the famous saying, I don't even know who said it, but they tried to kill us. They didn't realize we were seeds. No matter what, there's some sort of growth opportunity. There's some sort of stability that we have as a Jewish people. Either we're stars, and that's our responsibility to be stars, to illuminate the, the, the night for people, to be an example, to be a lamplighter of what sacred values are. It's twofold. It's number one, an example of someone who lives up to their values as best they could. And number two, um, the values themselves are a lamp lighting, are, 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 uh, is, serves as a guide. And if not, we're being trampled on, know that we're still 
safe. Can't destroy sand. We say in the Haggadah, this is what has stood for us and our fathers. Right? In every single generation, they try to destroy us, but God always comes to our salvation. Right? We recite that while we're holding the glass. God has made us a promise. He's not going to destroy us. We're here. We ain't going nowhere. And the reason is because of the covenant that God made with us. It all started with Abraham and his commitment. God saw he, him and his people, his descendants. They have the eth a work ethic of an incredibly crazy committed person. Not only out of love, because that's their nature, but even out of reverence. Like, any thoughts, comments? Um, when you first were giving the analogy of sand, my mind immediately went to, well, okay, sand is from the earth. So, so I was thinking earth when you right. said sand. Um, but so I'm, I'm a little bit unsure of your distinction in the analogy of earth versus sand now. Can, can you clarify that just a little bit? I think depending on the context, they'll, they'll overlap. Um, sand usually is going to be like more like the beach. And earth is going to be more, I imagine more something like soil that you use that, that's, that's fertile. The thing that's interesting to me is, um, I know when, when you look up at the sky, there are a lot of stars, but the way, the way it says this, it, implies like an infinite amount of stars. And back, back in those times, they didn't have the technology we have now to know that there's an infinite amount of stars. So it's, it's interesting that that comparison's made. Say that again, I missed that. Scientifically, do they, do they believe that there's an infinite amount of stars? Um, well, I don't know how infinity can exist in a. Well, and I was thinking the same thing. I, I would, I would almost have believed the other thing. Where like science has proved that that stars there are, are numbered a finite number of stars. Right. Well, uh, we can't, we can't count them. And we can't count. We well, certainly can't count them. But, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm just curious where where this where this uh, came from. I mean, my 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 point is just. Um, I I once. I'll, I'll, I'll have to say that I once heard somebody explain the statement as a kind of proof that for, for anybody who thinks that um, the Torah is man-written, at least for this person, was, he used it as a proof that it's divine because for if any man at that time was to make a, um, make a statement that's kind of like relying on a countless number of stars in the heavens when if you look up i mean you, you can't necessarily just deduce that in modern times we have technology where we can look billions of years away and interesting um, but take a moment and try meditating on this because essentially every single prayer that's going to pop up in the sitter serves as some sort of meditation Think about the continuity of Judaism. How we are continuing 
the uh, as a community the the um observance starting from abraham there's a great song from eighth day the eighth day band and one of the lyrics is that the song is called i think it's called abraham You're familiar with the song words are abraham are we that shining star that you saw at night are we stars or are we sand if you sing it i might recognize it abraham are we the children that you dreamed of are yeah. we that shining star? You, you know that song? Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. If, if you don't know it, look it up on YouTube. It's great. It's wonderful. It's really inspiring. It really is. But this is something that our sages wanted us to kind of think about in the morning. We're going to be as numerous as the stars and as the sand. There's times we're going to be like stars. There's times we're going to be like sand. No matter what, we're here. Maybe it's our choice, whether we're stars or sand. How we live our lives. But at the end of the day, even if a Jew is like sand and the Judaism is being trampled on, the Neshama is still there. We're still there. And why is this? Why does a Jew have this stability? Why does the lineage of Abraham have this stability? Why were we blessed of, with this stability? So take a look um, in the text. Five, uh, five lines from the bottom of the paragraph not the bottom of the page but the bottom of the paragraph and all the nations of the earth <clears throat> shall bless themselves by your descendants because you abraham have obeyed my voice this is an example of where a translation doesn't do justice and not to say that the translation is incorrect but when you choose a translation um you limit yourself to other interpretations. Take a look at the Hebrew, the third to last line. Right after the comma. Akev. You see the word Akev? Akev. Akev means because. Asher that. Shema You listen to my voice. I'm going to bless you because you listen to my voice. There's another interpretation of the word Akev. What else does Akev mean? Hill. Good. Abraham was so inspired by God that even his heel obeyed God. Even his feet ran to do the right thing. He wasn't only, he didn't only intellectually process what God said. And that makes sense. He didn't only emotionally connect and was inspired, not only behaviorally, but even his heel was compelled to run to do the right thing. We that which is essentially the goal of prayer is to train ourselves to be so sensitive to the Torah, so sensitive to emet, so sensitive to truth that it's just a part of our physio, our, our, our physiological selves want it. We don't even have to think about it. It's our, it's our nature. I'll tell you a great story. Rabbi Shalom Dovber of Lubavitch, known as the Rebbe Rashab. was once washing for bread. And in, in the Shulchan Aruch, or the age-old tradition is to wash two times on each hand. One, two, one, two. 
the Chabad tradition, as well as some others, I think maybe Sephardim do it like this as well. They wash three times on each hand. So he was washing in a, three times on his hand. Somebody once asked him, why are you doing three times? Isn't the tradition to do two times? And he said, I'll be honest with you. I don't remember the exact source, the academic source for why we do three times. But I could tell you washing three times is a legitimate thing. I could guarantee you that. He says, how could you guarantee me that it's a legitimate custom if you can't even cite the source? He says, because I've studied the source. He says, how do you know? You don't remember it. He says, because I've trained my body to listen to everything Torah says. So if I'm doing it, it's right. Now, that's a lofty um, ideal. And we're not, we're, we're certainly not on that level. That, that's, a, that's a real tzaddik. But we can get, we, we, we can kind of relate to that in our own way. There's certain things in our life which perhaps when we were engaging in Judaism maybe several years ago, it seemed unnatural, uncomfortable. Now it's a part of our lives. We don't even think about it. Right. And that's kind of the idea is that the more we engage, the more we process, the more we pray, the more we internalize, the more it becomes part not only of us, uh, not only does it become part of us intellectually, I'm comfortable with the idea or emotionally feels good. But even it, it, it's part of me physiologically, which is ultimately what God wants. He wants to be part of our heal. God wants to be part of the physical world. That's why most mitzvahs are behavioral. Okay. The interesting thing about that story you just told, I remember reading that some weeks ago or months ago in Hayom Yom, but I, it, it didn't say the part about others doing it two times so i thought he had um come up with the idea of doing it three times from not doing it at all oh i'm glad you cleared that up yeah 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 no no the, the washing the actual washing is is age-old tradition but yeah okay take a look in the middle of the page there's a new paragraph in the middle of the page and this is a post prayer after we've recited the Akedah, we've gone through the meditation of the sacrifice that Abraham had. We pray to God and we say, God, Abraham sacrificed what was unnatural for you. Can you do the same for his people? Can you do what may seem unnatural for his people? Um, because it's a, this actually is almost cut and paste maybe difficult to notice because slichos is very long but this is cut and paste from a portion of the slichos prayer it's a um what's the word it's one of those prayers you wouldn't recite when tachnun is not recited because it's more of a my vocabulary is running low as the hour gets late help me out well, here john well I was just going to say I enjoyed a nice month-long vacation from saying this. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it takes me like two minutes to get through it. Probably 30 seconds for you. but <laughs> It's a, okay, whatever the word is, it's, it's a, not a somber prayer, but it's, it's a prayer praying for, you know, pleading, pleading for mercy. Supplica supplication? A supplication. That's what I was thinking. Of. Sovereign of the universe, right? Ribono Shalala, master of the universe. 
We say, just as Abraham, our father, suppressed his compassion for his only son to do your will with his whole heart, so may your compassion suppress your wrath against us. And may your mercy prevail over your attribute of stern justice. Right? Abraham went against his nature. He implemented discipline, reverence, rather than love. So if there's times where we deserve discipline, do the inverse, implement love rather than discipline. Act toward us, Lord our God, with the attributes of kindness and compassion and deal with us leniently. In, okay, I got to tell you a great story. I heard this story today. Unfortunately, a couple of days ago, there was a rabbi named Rabbi Zachariah Wallerstein who passed away. He, he, was, he was a special person. He would go around and speak, inspired hundreds of thousands of people. He gave a lot of attention to the youth. He was, he was 64 years old. He was ill. And I, I guess it was unexpected that he passed away. And he was unique because while a lot of rabbis focus on outreach, reaching out to those who are quote unquote unaffiliated, and obviously you're affiliated with Judaism just by being Jewish, so there's no such thing as unaffiliated, but with people who are not yet engaged or initiated, his focus was on inreach. He would focus on youth from Jewish and religious communities that were kind of on the fringe in you know, rebellious states, didn't really connect to their Judaism, wanted to do their own thing, perhaps ostracized from uh, more extreme families. And he would show them the love of Judaism. He would show them the truth of Judaism, which is an incredible balance. Everybody needs a teacher that's going to tell them the truth and show it to them with love, which is an incredible balance. And he would do that. And he engaged so many people and helped them better connect with their Judaism but again, he's dealing with it's a it's an interesting niche because he's dealing with people that come that that know all the catchphrases, know all the bumper sticker lines. <laughs> you need more than that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they grew up in it, but they're, you know, weren't connecting and they're kind of leaving it. There was this girl whom he taught. I think he taught in like a post high school type of thing for girls. There's this girl who he taught. Her name was Abby. Abby was becoming more uh, warm toward her Jewish heritage. Abby had a tongue piercing. Abby had a tongue piercing. And I, I, it's gross, right? And again, you got to picture this. A girl who comes from an observant community, an observant home, but needs to find uh, a tongue piercing so she could express her individuality. You know? <laughs> he says to her one day, Abby, can you do me a favor? <laughs> get rid of that stupid thing. I didn't say stupid, probably, but get rid of that thing. It's like, come on. She says, no. Why not? You're, 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 you've come so warm towards your Judaism. What do you need a tongue ring for? She says, this is what makes me me. 
He says, one day they're walking home from shul. And he says, you know what, Abby, I'll make you a deal. You believe that tongue ring is you. I'll make you a deal. You take off that tongue ring. You give it to me. I'll, I will um, screw that piercing onto my talus bag. And it's going to come to shul with me every single morning. And Abby, because that ring is you, will be in shul with me every morning. And Abby and I will pray together. And when I die, Abby will come into my grave with me. This is what he says. She says, you're not going to do that. You're going to put a piercing on your tallest bag. You're going to walk around on your, your tallest bag with a, a piercing on it. <laughs> he says, I'm a man of my word. She says, let me think about it. He says, like 10 minutes later, she says, put your hand out. Huh? <laughs> she unscrews the, the ring. <laughs> she puts it in his hand. Puts it on his tallest bag. This girl is no longer Abby. She's now Avichael. And she did something that was totally against her nature. By the way, this rabbi, they actually, uh, he has, they showed a picture of his talus bag. It's covered in piercings from quote unquote rebellious, you know, kids whom he kind of got them to give up these obnoxious types of piercings, put it on his tallest bag. And they, when they buried him just a couple of days ago, he died. He died on Sunday, I think. I think the funeral was Sunday. They buried him with his tallest bag as per his request. It's in the grave with him. The reason why I mentioned this story is because these are kids going through a difficult time. I'm not judging them for having um, obscure, weird piercings. They're going through a difficult time, probably all sorts of baggage but they're willing to go against their nature as Abraham did because deep down inside, they love God. They do deep down inside. They respect God. And what we're saying to God is Abraham is doing this for you. Going against his nature. Abraham's children are going against their nature. So God, there's certain things that may, we may have coming to us um, naturally. Consequently, break nature. We do it all the time. Why don't you do it? Give it a try, God. One, two, three. Six lines from the top of the paragraph. End of the line. You see it in your great goodness. Let your fierce anger turn away from your people, from your city from your land and from your heritage, fulfill us, Lord, our King, the promise which you have made to us in your Torah through Moses, your servant in your glorious name. As it is said, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham. Will I remember? I will remember the land. Here's the line I want to focus on. Hold on. And as it, it this is going to be powerful. And as it is said, yet even then, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not abhor them. What does abhor them mean? My Hebrew is better than my English in this case. Abhor means like hate. Okay. I won't hate them, nor spurn them. 
so as to destroy them and annul my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. God says, I love these people unconditionally. You could be the worst Jew. And even halachically deserve perhaps the worst of consequences. But deep down in God, deep down inside God says, I love them. Take a look at the Hebrew. I like the Hebrew better. One, two, three, four, five lines from the bottom toward the end of the line where it says, Vinetamar. We're reminding God, you have a covenant with us. You got to take care of us no, unconditionally. It's like a ketubah, right? What is a ketubah? Ketubah is a husband's obligation to the spouse. Unconditional obligations. A husband needs to take care of his wife regardless of how their relationship is going. <laughs> it's unconditional. And that's what we're reminding God of the covenant he made with Abraham. Unconditionally. The verse says, Despite all this, while they're in the lands of their enemies, what was the English word? I will not abhor them. I won't be disgusted by them. I won't spurn them. I won't like boil them. And then the last word, to destroy them. The word means to destroy them. God says, I'm not going to destroy them. These are my people. There's another meaning of the word. It comes from the Hebrew word kala. What's a kala? A bride. Bride. Right? God yeah, says, bride. I'm not going to destroy them because they are my bride. This is what the Zohar says on this verse. The Zohar, one of the earliest works of Kabbalah. By Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Right? We're celebrating Lagba Omer soon. Is it next week? The Zohar says, gives an analogy of a newlywed couple. They're in deep love with each other. The wife works in a leather tannery. Anybody been to a leather tannery? The first thing we know about leather tanneries is they smell really bad. Right, I'm, I'm actually surprised. I thought I thought leather leather smells good, but maybe not maybe not in its form before I ever saw. Yeah, it. Yeah, but by the time it gets to your coat, it smells good. But a lot of leather, and you know, before it smells gross. He comes, she comes home at the end of the day, and his reaction is because he's crazy about this lady. Oh, you smell good. <laughs> now, were it to be anybody else, he'd be a he'd be nauseous. <laughs> so why does he think she smells good? It's not the smell that he likes. He likes her. She could do anything. Even smell pugnantly. But he's in deep love. And the Zohar says it's the same thing with us. God is in deep love with us. We are his bride. Because God made this covenant with Abraham. We may smell. We may have gotten ourselves into a rut. We may have done things to really... Um, you know, done sins that are uh, akin to being in that leather factory of, uh, and, and getting into all these smells. But God says, I love you. Whoever knew this prayer was so romantic. Shir Hashirim, the book of Song of Songs, which is traditionally read on Passover. It was a Megillah, 
biblical book authored by King Solomon describing the deep love that God has for us. And it's described as a marital love. In Shir Hashirim, it says, God, your love is greater than that of wine. And the way the commentaries understand this literally is the pleasure one will get from loving God is greater than the pleasure they're going to get from physical pleasure from even wine. But there's a deeper interpretation here. This is where Hasidus comes in. There's a deeper interpretation here. What does wine do to you? It brings out a different side of you, a deep side of you. It could even be a good side of you that wine is bringing out, right? The famous saying, when, the, when wine comes in, the depths, the secrets come out. Wine brings out the depths, which is why at a Fabring, and when we're trying to talk soul to soul, we say, Elohim, right? So what's, what's interesting is uh, <clears throat> normally uh, uh, when people say, oh, you know, this person is inebriated, they're, they're much less inhibited um, in that condition. So I'm thinking, okay, well, how does, how does inhibition uh, work alongside uh, your expression of depth? And I'm not quite making the connection between the two. We are so often afraid to be confidently Jewish. That's an, inhibi that's an inhibition. We're afraid to admit in public that we love God. We're afraid to show uh, uh, this is everybody on their own level, right? Some people are more afraid than others and everybody in their own way, in their own circumstance. How afraid are we to show publicly and wear it as a badge of honor that we're in deep love with God? And even if we're not feeling it, we're still going to show it because deep down inside we believe it. That's it. These are inhibitions to show that we are proud Jews to show that we are descendants of Abraham, that we believe in this covenant as much as God does, as much as God shows us that he does. These are all inhibitions. And sometimes we say Elohim to help us numb those inhibitions. But again, like you're saying, I, I agree with you, Mike, though. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. That is a dangerous rabbit hole. If you need wine to be proud about your Judaism, what are we going to call that? <laughs> Addiction. If you need wine to be comfortable with yourself, whether in a Jewish context or a psychosocial, emotional, con any context, once you're dependent on the wine for that, that's an addiction. But Shir Hashirim, King Solomon, in his great wisdom, King Solomon was known as one of the most wise people to have ever graced the earth. King Solomon says, but the love of God is even greater than wine. Because wine does bring out depths. It brings out a deep side of us, which perhaps we didn't even know of. But the love of God can bring out an even deeper side of us. The love of God can bring out a side of us that we never could have imagined that we even had. We can replace the need to feel... Um, the need, the, or the feeling of inhibition and the need to, 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 to numb those inhibitions with wine, we could replace that with love. 
And with that, and that's essentially what this covenant is, with that comes confidence. So let me just, let's just conclude with one more thing. Take a look on page 41. Page 41, this is the blessings that precede the Shema. This is my favorite prayer. It's the second paragraph on the page. It's one, two, three, four, five. 11 lines from the top of the paragraph. It's the second paragraph. It, it, when I was a kid growing up, the sitters were actually numbered. The lines are actually numbered. They don't do that anymore. That'd be nice. This is where I struggle to get the seat seat all together. For, uh... Yeah. So if you, uh, how many lines did I say? 11? I already forgot. You, you did say yeah, 11. 11. Okay. M the middle of the, the, of the line where it says enlighten. We say enlighten our eyes with your Torah, cause our hearts to cleave to your commandments and unite our hearts to love and fear your name. Right? So God, let us experience the love. And what's the result of that? Confidence. Because right afterwards, we say, may we never be put to shame, disgrace, or stumbling. Because if we actually experience the love of God, we're going to be confident. We're not going to need wine. We're not going to need external stimulation. And this is what we're trying to experience, re-experience, as we recite the Akedah, and the um, supplementary prayer that comes after, reminding ourselves, reminding God of the covenant, deep love, unconditional love, and responsibilities that we have toward each other. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.